but it, you know, I, I fully understand that for the post office point of view, having guaranteed footfall is very, very important to them. And at that time, the majority of people uh, in receipt of benefits would have to go to the post office to cash their gyro uh, to uh, get um, their money. Uh, now, I can see that the last government, that's the government that was in power until 1997, was uh, trying to find what you might call an elegant solution, whereby the uh, benefits agency had a more secure way of making payments through a card, but it would also mean because the card had to be used in a post office, it would guarantee footfall. Welcome to the Westminster tradition, where we are unpacking lessons for the public service, starting with the RoboDebt Royal Commission. My name is Alison Lloyd-Wright and joining me today on Ghana Land is my fellow South Australian public servant, Caroline Crozer-Barlow. Hello, Alison. And recovering public servant, now of Good Government Advisory, Danielle Elston. Hello, Alison. All right, so in 2019, a High Court judgment described the Horizon IT system in the British Post Office as being not remotely robust <laughs> and certainly not capable of founding prosecutions for theft, which, as we know, happened. And moreover, as Danielle foreshadowed in our last episode, the Post Office Board knew the system was a dud well before they rolled it out in late 1999. So how did the post office end up with such a terrible IT system at its core? Was a better system possible? And how, when at one point the organisation was acutely aware of its flaws, did post office come to believe in Horizon with so much certainty and fervour <laughs> that it prosecuted hundreds of innocent people based on what it said? In this mini-series, we're going to track through the process by which the post office actively chose a lemon before making lemonade and forcing innocent victims to drink it. So, Caroline, in this episode, you want to talk us through why Horizon was always going to be a lemon. Look, I actually have two tortured metaphors in mind for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, one is a lemon, and uh, thank you for going with me on that. The other is a camel, a horse designed by a committee. Mm. Because at a practical level, how post office ended up with Horizon, sorry, the post office. Thank you, Caroline. <laughs> cheers. Ended up with Horizon <laughs> is an object lesson in the impact of a very poorly structured government procurement. More broadly, though, the events in this episode, I think, are a lesson about how hard it is for governments and specifically for ministers to choose between genuinely competing mm. interests. And surprisingly, I think in looking at this period, we are going to see some of the best written advice I've reviewed in this pod, and frankly, that I've read in my career. I note looks of surprise. <laughs> Look, this advice well, has... it clearly wasn't enough to turn it around. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. But we're talking about advice with options, which we've talked oh, about. I love tea. I love options. <laughs> right. It's frank and fearless. It doesn't hide the conflict. So the issue in buying Horizon wasn't poor advice or even poor judgment. It was actually that sometimes you get to the point where all your choices are bad. Mm. So I think the real question is, how did they get to that point? All right. So, and with nothing but love, ICT <laughs> procurement is not the most exciting topic we could cover. You're going to have to work pretty hard to make this one exciting, Caroline. <laughs> Look, it's December 1998. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, ladies. It's December 1998 and Jeff Mulgan, civil servant advising Tony Blair and 
and I'd say future thinker in residence for the South Australian government, writes a piece of five-page, well-spaced advice that opens with the words, a decision needs to be taken on whether to proceed with the Horizon Project. You'll recall that this is the initiative to automate the post office network involving ICL. The project is nearly three years behind schedule, having been plagued with problems. And he goes on to cogently outline a range of options, which I'll talk you through later. And so let's just hold up one moment. Why was the PM giving a steer on whether or not to proceed with Horizon at all? Look, because in Jeff Mulgan's own words, this is one of those ones where the different parts of government were really at loggerheads. They had diametrically opposed positions. Mm. And at this point, they were becoming more, not less entrenched. I mean, we've all seen that, right? <laughs> so, Plenty of familiarity with that. <laughs> that's exactly right. So, look, the procurement began three years before, and it's the bastard child of many not very overlapping interests. And when the interests come to a head, it does have to come to the top to resolve. So, in the quote at the top of the episode, we hear Alastair Darling, former, cha- former Chancellor and a key Labor minister at this time, describe this procurement as what you might call an elegant solution. I fear too clever by half. So I'm going to introduce you to some of the key players. And I know Danielle's been diving a bit as well, so she might jump in with some colourful details. <laughs> um, so let me introduce you firstly, not to post office actually, but to the benefits agency, the people mm. who pay welfare, who are really interested in this point in fraud reduction from encashment, which is people claiming other people's benefits or presumably claiming like a false coupon. Like that's not a word, but sure. I loved it. Look, I like the way they name things in the UK. Benefits agency. Encashment. (laughs) That's right. And look, in time, the benefits agency plan to solve their fraud problem by directly transferring money to the bank accounts of the recipients. Which Sorry, seems... hold up. They weren't doing that? <laughs> Is this 1948 or 1998? <laughs> like every so often I am struck by Australia being more advanced on some of these things than the rest of the world. Certainly, uh, yes. Uh, yes, no, they weren't doing that. Um but they knew it would be better for their clients, at least those clients who had bank accounts. Um, mm. And they weren't ready for it at scale. Um, now, benefits agencies seem to have a relationship with a kind of parent agency called DSS. And their interest in this process is that they really thought the post office was a super expensive way of delivering the benefits. So they were looking for a cheaper way of delivering benefits. And then the post office is being required to move into the place where it's like a a going concern that can wash its own face, can deal with its own money, and they're really worried about viability. So the post office is paper-based. It has this, like, existential need to engage in automation, Mm. and it's really worried about losing the benefits agency work, which is about 30% of its revenue. Um, So in a practical sense, are you picking up your benefit in cash mm-hmm. yep. from the, the post, post office. office. Using a coupon. You take in a paper coupon from your I'm coupon I'm Alison book. and I'm on Oz study. Yep. Give me my cash. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the post office is keen to keep that business, knows that it can't keep doing it in the paper-based way. Um, it's an arm's length entity from government, but the appointments on the board are made by the secretary and it also needs treasury investment for significant investments which of course Mm. gets us to Mm. treasury anyone want to have a guess what treasury's interest in this process is oh they want to spend more money (laughs) (laughs) no i got it wrong no uh no (laughs) 
their interest, if at all, is in spending the least amount of money on what I would describe as the minimum viable solution. Is How's that for a guess? Uh, 10 out of 10. Ooh. Alison and Danielle, you're back to remedial public sector <laughs> school. So that's the interests of most of the players. And then there's this last one who I can't work out who to give the interest to. The community has also got this worry about rural post offices, right? It's worried that they might lose their local post office. Ah, uh, okay. So yep. they want it to be viable as well. They yep. do. And this has strong vibes in Australia. Not yeah. so much just post offices. Banks. And I think schools. Where this is quite mm. – well, this is what I was going to get with, with banks and post offices is we've kind of gone a little bit down this way now with the role that the post office in Australia plays in relation to being a bank trans, a bank kind of mm-hmm. front end. But the closure of bank branches remains incredibly controversial. Yeah. yeah, and so, interestingly, one of post offices' long-term strategies at this point is that they want to sort of maybe become a bank for the unbanked. They're like, oh, yeah, maybe our long-term solution hmm. when benefits agency moves to, like, paying directly into banks is that we offer a really simple banking product. Yeah. Which makes sense, right? Anyway. Especially considering there's 18,000 of them. Exactly. Uh, and I'd- so how do all these interests then start to come together or not as the case <laughs> maybe. So apart from leaving us at a point later on where it becomes very stuck, in 1995 these interests come together into a very specific structure for a procurement that is a complete disaster. Firstly, because Treasury, it's set up as a PFI. Have you guys ever done a private finance initiative nope we've got a few of them in the state so some of our schools some of our more recently built schools are um, pfis what they are is there's something where with no upfront money from government a third-party provider builds a thing and then government pays for its use ongoing so instead of kind of paying for the upfront capital they pay a kind of fee as you go through. So toll roads, great example. Yeah. Rent yeah. to buy kind of. Yeah. Rent to, rent to buy. <laughs> but you don't own it at the end. But you don't yeah. buy. Just rent. <laughs> That's right. It's more like renting. Yeah. Service delivery like prisons. You often see a PFI yep. on a prison. So look, in a PFI, the supplier has greater freedom and it's really intended as like more off the shelf kind of thing where the... And the benefit of it is that the supplier wears the risk of any of those costs of customization. So, mm. you know, if your school actually happens to be peopled with, I don't know, abnormally tall children and you need to make the school very, very high ceiling, the supplier wears that risk. Yep. So you just have to keep paying the kind of monthly user fee that yep. comes after that. What this leads to when you do a PFI is that, like the government becomes much less interested in the technical risk of are the doorways high enough or are the mm-hmm. bathrooms they don't own it. suitable. They don't own it. That risk goes to the supplier and they become much more interested in the commercial contents of the contract, right? What am yep. I going to pay? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think you guys can see where this is going. So in this procurement, they choose a company called ICL Pathway, which eventually becomes owned by Fujitsu and we just know it as Fujitsu, even though they are assessed as the least te- technically competent Right, And they choose it because ICL Pathways say, well, we're willing to take on more of the risk, Mm. right, more of the technical risk in return for this return. Now, do you guys know that old saying that if you owe the bank a million bucks, it's your problem, but if you owe the bank a billion bucks, it's theirs? Yes. (laughs) Right? So I reckon, like, there's something really similar here, right? Like, technically, the technical risk does sit with ICL Mm. Pathway, but if it's the thing... Yeah. 
I also actually just don't think that you can ever fully contract or otherwise mm -hmm. remove yourself from the risk in a political sense. Oh, and this is right? what I was about to say. I mean, you see like, this. You're still local members. Exactly. You're still the government. And you see this still gonna through government where yeah. you go, oh, but this is a step removed. It's a board. It's a this. It's a that. Mm -hmm. Independent statutory authority. Mm. Yeah, arm's length. Arm's length body. <laughs> At the end of the day, punters don't care. If punters don't care, politicians don't care. At the end of the day, risk sits with government. Yeah. That's exactly right. So I think we've come to one of the stupidest parts of this initiative, which is that they thought they could outsource risk and they haven't. The second stupid part of this procurement is because they're trying to do this too clever by half thing where they want to reduce fraud for the benefits agency and keep people from benefits going to post offices, the solution they want to buy is something called a benefits payment card. So every welfare recipient, instead of going along with their coupon, is going to go on with a magnetic stripe reader card uh, and collect from the post office, right? So we've now got two clients for this unusual piece of technology, Benefits mm. agency buying their benefits payments card and post office buying its entire uh, post point of sale service thing. Does this sound problematic? Yep. yep. Yeah. Thirdly, oh, it gets worse, right? ICL Pathway are like a conglomerate of a couple of different things that might be useful in this. So they've got the people who do the benefits payment card. They've got someone who does a bit of post office um, software for Ireland. Uh, so they've kind of brought together all of these technical elements in the last bit to make the bit. So it is generally agreed with hindsight that the structure is disastrous, that <laughs> it was definitely what? not the right way to procure a giant, at that stage, largest civilian ICT system in the Northern Hemisphere. Oof. Yeah. Wow. Not the best way of doing that. Uh, and that neither post office nor benefits agency are sophisticated enough to be involved in that. So not surprisingly, things go badly. By 1998, ICL Pathways has spent £200 million and they haven't got a penny back. Because remember, they only get paid once they when start delivering the service. Yeah. Oh, £200 million in the hole. At the end of 97, they miss a key test deadline. Benefits Agency and DSS don't think the project can work. But if you recall, they never wanted it to because they actually don't want to be doing this stupid thing with post office. They just um, want to be paying into They just accounts. want to be paying it to like They're all deadlocked and everyone mm. is getting very cross. Add two more people. So we've heard about benefits and ICL and post office. Now we also start to hear from the Department of Industry and something, DIT, who become really worried because the UK's biggest computer manufacturer, uh, um, software giant, ICL Pathways, is £200 million in the hole and might go under. So they're suddenly <laughs> worried about the longevity of a company. And we have Fujitsu, who have started to invest in IGL pa ICL Pathways and they're worried about losing their money. And so they're like writing these bemused uh, missives to Prime Minister Blair saying things like, we have complete disbelief at HMG's decision-making process, which is just delightful. So Hang on, can I just say at this point, you're making ICT procurement like a thriller. I so know. <laughs> nailing it, girl. <laughs> I'm like, and then what happens? <laughs> right. Excellent. So, Harriet Harman, so you've got to remember, Blair has only just got into power, right? 97, they get in mm -hmm. after the Tories. I know, he's a baby, he has all his hair at this point, and he looks very, very young. Harriet Harman, the new social services minister, smart woman, in February 98, her agency comes to her and says, it's a dud, they've spent 200 million bucks, it's never going to work, and we just want to give the money directly. And she writes a letter that I'm going to ask you to read out a bit of, Dee, because... 
I think it's just brilliant because it's one of those few times where a minister really shows the breadth of perspective. So can you take us away? Absolutely. The immediate urgency on the financing of the project means that John Denham, who is leading this work here, needs to write very shortly to Alistair Darling on the funding issues. Although we, as a portfolio, have a clear view about the best route forward, I am clear that we should at all costs seek to avoid getting focused too closely on individual departmental interests, and that we should aim to establish an agreed view from the start, avoiding the potentially damaging effects that our quite legitimately differing departmental views can have when exposed to the public eye. Don't you love it? I do. I just, I read that and I'm like, that is just excellent ministering, right? Like she's got an agency giving her advice that says, scrap the deal, scrap the deal. And she's mm. like, mm, I can see there might be some other things going on. I also like that it's quite legitimately differing departmental views. Yes. So it takes account of the fact that in these systems, we do have a silo and we have a different set of interests to yes. the other person at the table. That's right. And, and we structure that way on purpose. Mm. Yeah. That's we, exactly right. We are designed to create and resolve internal conflict. It's brilliant, right? Like I just think, and so she does this in February 98 and it leads to a chain of events that leads to that December 98 uh, minute that we just heard from a little bit earlier from Jeff Mulgan. And in the end, the kind of very prolonged process of working out what to do comes up with three options. One is just to keep on going as you are, split up the 200 million quid between government and ICL and live with the fact that the project is really, really late, right? That's That, by the way, is obviously the preferred option of ICL, but also the preferred option of post office who just mm. want to keep, you know, benefits agency work and they're like, oh, whatever, we're down the path now. The second is to renegotiate with ICL and to progress the horizon system but take out benefits card. So post office gets their modernisation but benefits agency would be asked to hold off making direct bank transfers until post office can get into the banking game. So people will come in with their little pieces of paper for a couple of years more and then kind of move into it. And the third is just to reject ICL's like approach and terminate the contract and let them take their 200 million quid loss and probably fall over. And so Morgan writes to the But PM, also then you don't have... You, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. Yeah. You've moved nowhere. In three years. In three years. So, Morgan asks whether the PM wants to give a steer. And I think it's fascinating because while I think Morgan's advice is excellently and cogently written, I'm going to put a little link on it in the, uh, in the show notes. What he later says to the inquiry about asking the PM is the following. And I think it's... Well, I don't know if this is a, a topic for an inquiry, but I, I repeatedly felt that he and other ministers were being put in impossible positions, making judgments on very complex commercial and technical issues on which they had no real, no background. It'd be very unlikely they could, you know, I mean, they have plenty of common sense, but it's not a good way to make decisions. How would they make decisions then? Impressionistically, re relying on their common sense? They were making decisions based on papers from civil servants who were perfectly um, you know, intelligent, well-educated civil servants. But again, very few of the ones making the recommendations had any background in this kind of project. Uh, and those were then being fed into a political decision-making process by a significant number of different ministers who, again, had no background in very large, complex technical projects. Major projects have to be run in a quite different way because if they 
come down to repeated essentially decisions by politicians and haggling by politicians, you really do risk ending up with, with worst case options. This is my question for you guys. What do you think about the PM weighing in on this quite complicated set of technical, commercial, uh, strategic issues? After you, Alison. Oh, I don't know. We're both pulling some faces here, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think there are multiple reasons why prime ministers, premiers and ministers uh, – uh, did you use the word interfere? Um, <laughs> <laughs> inject themselves into solving m- – I agree. And I, I think they should sometimes – Mm. Pause. <laughs> I'm watching Okay, so so you go. Let yeah. me go. Not all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are an, a vast number of things where it's actually really incredibly important to maintain the distinction between the public service and the 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 executive class of government. However, like I was saying before, you can't just contract out risk. Mm-hmm. You can't contract out political risk. Mm-hmm. And once it starts to become an issue that has legitimate political consequences in terms of not just your sort of electoral future, but how well you as a government are able to say that you represent and serve the people that you represent and serve, Mm. at the very least they have to be aware of those issues, if not giving an indicative steer I'd also say, per my earlier point, that sometimes those things do have to come to the centre of government and a Prime Minister's office or a, you know, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet or similar, precisely because of, as the Minister identified, like competing different streams of departmental priorities Mm. that just cannot be resolved without a, a sort of helicopter view about how those competing priorities are going to be managed. So, yes and. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yes and that's also what chairing the Cabinet is for. Agreed. And mm-hmm. so um, in some ways when you do it like this, you're taking it out of a Cabinet process oh. and so you're running this mm, parallel set true. of processes and you start to Yeah, right, I'm with you on this one. That yeah, agencies yeah, and, and agencies will forum shop for... Yep. Mm-hmm. I'll get a better run out of a cabinet process or I'll get a better run by taking it to the Direct PM to the boss. Premier's office. Yep. Oh, yeah. You're totally That's right. Inspired. And so, yep. you're right. I, so yes and. Um, and, yes, they can't outsource political risk and, and that is all terribly real. I just I just find that um, if you have – I think it's less – so there's two different types. There's ministers down into a like a line area and mm. then there's premiers and prime ministers in a cross-government sense. The ministers down into line areas – public servants get very unhappy about when they are giving steers on operational matters and yeah. I just wonder how often we stop and wonder why. Mm. Now, mm-hmm. this is because it's an intractable dispute yes. that needs an arbitra. Yeah. Now, that does happen. It would be better if the people at the table could solve a problem, but if they can't, that's where we're going to yeah. this process. In a direct ministerial sense, though, sometimes it's because we're not doing a good enough job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> Some ministers are unable to resist the temptation to choose the paint on the wall of the such and such. <laughs> Sometimes, though, it's they don't have confidence. Yeah. And that's one of two reasons. Because you're not doing a good enough job at it or you haven't communicated the kind of risks that they are interested in to them. So I yep. think yeah. I take your point about the role, Alison, but I think if we're trying to think about what's, what, what our role in it is, it's 
to reduce the risk of foreign shopping between cabinet and a mm-hmm. yeah. leader's office. That's point. Yeah. And to always reflect of is this minister giving us a steer on an ICT procurement or door handles or whatever else yeah. because they don't have confidence and why don't they have confidence and how are we not managing this properly? Yeah. Yeah, fair. So I need the next part of the thriller. <laughs> it ends up going to the PM. <laughs> he gives a steer. And Horizon ends up being a dud. So what was his steer and did he give the right one? (laughs) Look, it's hard to tell. In fact, his steer, which is to crack on with the full deal and split the losses between government and ICL, isn't what happens in the end. So, like, this is what I mean by frank and fearless, right? Like, you know, they didn't just take the wish of the Prime Minister and make it happen slavishly. They kind of kept iterating. In the end, DSS is cut out of the deal. They promise not to introduce bank transfers for a while and post office crack on with ICL pathways to complete Horizon in quite a hurry. This is agreed in principle in early 1999, like a year after this issue was first raised and a year and a half after they failed the first test anyway. Uh, And rollout is to commence at the end of 1999. And it resolves, although not neatly, the various interests, right? Mm. So post office keeps the business and benefits agency eventually gets to reduce fraud, da 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 But here's the bit. I think everyone was working from the wrong problem statement because it's been framed as a financial contractual dispute and partly that's because dss and the benefits agency are sulky about being forced into it so <laughs> no never really seen that in. before yeah, no yeah. never seen Seriously, that before. Right? they say it doesn't work and everyone's like oh, oh, oh sure sure yeah um i see your pathway is super secretive about the technology partly because it's a pfi so there you go there's a whole other thing um And I think also just because, like, people aren't super comfortable with technical subject matter. So they come to this question as though it's a financial or strategic commercial decision. But actually, it is also a technical problem. Yeah. That's why DSS kicked off. They failed a kind Mm. of, you know, ICT pathway. And no one really dove into that. And, you know, what's really intriguing is that the one person who spots this is Prime Minister Blair. His response to Morgan's minute back in December 98 is as follows. Danielle, can you do a Tony Blair read, please? Oh, I don't do impersonations. You know that. <laughs> one right. day I'll get you to or do Or accents. <laughs> so Tony Blair says, I prefer option one, cracking on and eating the costs. But for Jeff's statement that the system itself is flawed, surely there must be a clear view on this. Reading the enclosed papers, it all focuses on the financial deal. But there the risks risks are pretty even. The real heart of it is the system itself. Right. So the PM has actually identified the nub of the thing. It's not a contract. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a physical one, no, ICT yeah. isn't, but like it's a it's a well, it thing is a, and yeah. is the thing we're buying operational well, purpose <laughs> operational. So fascinatingly, even though this is the question he asks, he does not get an answer to that question. Mm. And that's for a range of reasons. Partly it's because of timing, right? So, like, the delay of actually going and finding that out would cruel the hopes of cancelling the contract in time or cracking on, right? So there's, like, a timing thing. But partly it's because the truth itself had become subject to politics. So Steve Robson, who's, like, the deputy in Treasury and the lead negotiator in 2019, says... 
If you sat in a meeting with the various parties and tried to have a discussion about the state of the project, you got a lot of complaint, criticism and lack of trust between the different parties as to what the state of the project was. To the extent that the state of the project wasn't satisfactory, why it wasn't satisfactory and whose fault it was that it wasn't satisfactory and that, you know, was like a cloud over the whole project at the time. Like he just could not come to a conclusion and it feels so familiar to me from that pink backs we discussed from the west wing episode with all the renewable technologies it's like when everyone is kind of casting nasturtiums like (laughs) but it also i mean it's not unfamiliar when there's a central procurement of ict unless there is enormous trust in whoever's going about it yes i have never seen the instinct of the users who will be forced to use it (laughs) Yes. Not to on spec say that it doesn't work. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and so 100%. Because we are the boy who cried wolf in this scenario. Oh, so true. The people saying, I don't think this is going to work, the, the, the centre who's doing the procurement is like, that's what you said last time. That's yep. what you always say. They yep. tend to work. They're a bit clunky. The first year's hard. We resolve it. No one ever wants to hear about year two. All you ever tell me about is year one. Oh, my God, you're nailing this. And so you have absolutely no credibility, except the problem with the boy who cried wolf is sometimes they're right. And not just for IT systems, right, but oh from no. a central government totally. perspective. <laughs> everything. <laughs> everything. Like, every change. Every change, every sense of, like, I hear that you value this thing and a different agency values another thing and we're going to come to a compromise. Is mm-hmm. But the important thing, I think, to remember is just because people have an agenda – doesn't mean they're wrong. Yes. And so I can think of examples where I have participated and been the, oh, being pushed into this ICT system, not going to like it. <laughs> and then other ones where it's been like, no, this this clearly isn't what we do. That's mm-hmm. not operational. Yeah. That turned out to not work and have to be ditched mm. and rebuilt. So think- this is a problem of how we engage with each other and how kind of we have trust and how we communicate and how we have any kind of credibility on when we say something's not going to work. I have been thinking so deeply about I had a a boss who had a kind of particular style where they would just say things like oh we should just blow it up or you know like had a kind of particular way of doing things and I have been thinking since I left that job that actually we should have just blown the thing up. Mm. And what's so interesting is I, at the time, resisted it quite fiercely. And, in fact, I've been meaning to go and apologise to them about it because I didn't trust the place where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's such a lesson, like especially if like we're the sort of people who kind of we think not just with our heads but we also think about the credibility of of the people presenting to us. So one of our heuristics is we trust people, yep. what yeah. people say because of why they're saying And none it. of these are new relationships, right? Yes. Like if we've yes. all been at this for a while, we've known these people in different jobs and in different departments and on mm-hmm. different issues and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just reckon sometimes that leads you really wrong. Anyway. Absolutely. So in the end, look, I think people didn't think too hard about the technical side uh, because they assumed that if the product was fundamentally flawed, post office would reject it at the end anyway. So they've just agreed to sign the contract, right? They still haven't agreed to accept it. And they thought, well, if it's really broken, they won't accept it and they won't pay for it. Why they did pay for it is going to be our next episode. Ooh, till next time. Just some appropriately bureaucratic disclaimers. Those of us in the employ of the state government speak in a strictly personal capacity, consistent with the Public Sector Code of Ethics that permits public servants to promote an outcome in relation to an issue of public interest, in this case, the betterment of the public service. 
nothing we say should be taken as representing the views of the government or our employers. While we've tried to be as thorough in our research as busy full-time jobs and lives allow, we definitely don't guarantee that we've got all the details right. Please feel free to email us corrections, episode suggestions or anything else at the Westminster Tradition Pod at gmail.com. Thanks to Pampot Audio for our intro and outro music. Till next time.